0: Uh, and it, and, it, and I think the students liked it too. Um, but and they and they learned things, so that was good. And the the only thing that I that I ended up discovering <laughs> I like that.
1: And and they learned things. Oh, too. Yeah. So that was that
0: good. was good. Yeah.
1: Hello and welcome to this should work podcast session number four. An interview with Andrew Morrison from Joliet Junior College and Workshop eighty-eight, the hackerspace in Glen Ellen. In this session we talk about the physics of music, citizen science, and working at a, a makerspace and, and what what these spaces mean. Andrew has been a friend of mine for about a decade now and We have uh, done a lot of fun things together, and I've enjoyed watching his work on the physics of music from afar, so I hope you enjoy this episode. Please subscribe to This Should Work on iTunes, uh, Overcast, and SoundCloud, and any other (laughs) medium that's out there, and uh, feel free to like us and, and give us comments on any and all of those platforms too. Thanks for continuing to listen, and um, if you love, if you're enjoying this show, um, you know also feel free to share with your friends and and tell them to hop on board too. All right. Without further ado, this is Andrew Morrison, Session Four. Okay, so we're recording. This is this should work, Session Four, and we are with uh, Andrew Morrison. Um, Andrew, do you hold any positions at Workshop 88 or are you just the resident, you know, guy who does everything, uh, at Workshop 88 these days?
0: I'm, uh, am on the, uh, executive board, um, as a, uh, I guess, board member.
1: Got it. So Andrew Morrison, board member at Workshop 88, professor at Julia Junior College and all around awesome guy. And, uh, we're going to be talking about some of, uh, your projects, both personal and, uh, the things that you're doing at the university. As well as some of the stuff uh, you do at Workshop 88 today, did I get that all right? Any blanks you want to fill in, or uh, should we should we get going?
0: Well, that's good enough. I think that's about right.
1: <laughs> okay, good enough. I'll take it. So, um, so you know, I, I mean, you know, we've known each other. You know, for for people who have been listening now for the past several episodes, I, I, uh, you, if you've listened to the the interview with Rudy Ristich, I've known Andrew for just about as long as, as Rudy. And, um, you know, we're going to talk a little bit today. A- Andrew does a lot of work with steel pen, um drums and uh, the, the physics of acoustics at JJC, Juliet Junior College, um, as well as with making and making it at, uh, at the, you know, the, the academic level as, as well as at the more informal workshop 88 level. But before we dive into that, uh, Andrew, what I wanted to talk about is um, I want to talk about what personal projects you're working on, anything you're doing. Uh, you know, outside of the the professional realm. So, um, you know, thanks for thanks for joining us as well. And um, why don't we dive in and talk about some some of the stuff you're doing for fun?
0: Uh, oh, thanks for having me. I um, it's really interesting. I, uh, I I have a couple of projects that I, I guess I've been working on recently, um, and and I have lots of personal projects that I should be working on, but I but I haven't had a chance to get get to as much. Um, I guess it, in about three or four weeks ago, um, Workshop Workshop ADA got approached by a local person who, who we know um, because they wanted some custom dice made. Um, so the idea is that there's going to be a fundraiser for an organ, a local organization and the uh, fundraiser is like a, a board game night. And so people are going to come and, and pay some money to raise some funds for an organization. And as a... You know, token of appreciation, they wanted to hand out to all the attendees uh, uh, a little uh, D6 with one side that has a the logo of the organization engraved on it. And I guess this has been done many times, but um, the inexpensive supplier of, of the custom dice um, is is kind of getting out of that business. And, and so the guy was saying, hey, is this something that, that could be done in Workshop 88? And so um, I kind of took that on, and, and just just as a, a matter, of like seeing what's the possibility of doing it. And so that's something I've been working on a, a little bit for fun, and also for, for Workshop eighty eight. Um, another project that I have going on, or personal project, is um, I, I have a I have a very small three D printer at home, uh, which I like because it's just desktop size, and it, it doesn't it looks like it's not, it's not, uh, in- industrial or it doesn't look like, a uh, like it came from somebody's, you know, <clears throat> workshop made out of scraps or whatever it's, it's, it's a really simple 3d printer. And, um, but as I w- as I've been trying things out and, and 3d printing things, I was a sem- or I was, a- accumulating a bunch of tools on, on the, the desktop and, uh, it occurred to me that I needed a little caddy for all of those specific tools that I was, you know, constantly reaching for and using. And so I started to play around with uh, designing my own little desk caddy thing. And what I actually came up with, what, and and I haven't, you know, put this out on online yet, but I, I have shared it at workshop 88 is um, a, a modular desktop caddy system where uh, there's a base that you can print out and then you pick the different parts that you want to snap in into the base. So uh, I I have like four or five different, uh, you know, different parts holders, like uh, holders for pencils specifically and holders for screwdrivers specifically and uh, a holder that is just like a deep slot to hold things. And I wanted, I was really trying to get SD card, slot holders built into this modular system and that's something that i haven't finished but um so i printed that out and it um it it held all my tools perfectly and i've been slowly printing another version of it to actually bring into my office at um at school so i can have it on on my actual desk to hold like um pens and pencils and stuff like that uh so those are my i guess those are my current personal projects that are actually like they're actually in progress and I'm actually, you know, accomplishing them. What's
1: um just out of curiosity, do you, do you plan on sharing that, putting that out there? Is that something that you want me to include when we, when we put this out?
0: Um, I I do plan to do it. It's I, uh, yeah, I mean, they're on, <laughs> they're on a, uh, right. I designed it in Tinkercad just cause I was playing around with it at the time and I'm uh, planning to, Post the files on on Thingiverse and, and, and that sort of thing. I just I just haven't done it yet, but yeah, yeah, absolutely,
1: awesome. All right, so I guess people, if you wanted to check the the um, the show notes to this this podcast, which is should be on our, our website when this this comes out at uh, shouldworkmedia.com, dot we'll have a a link to Andrew's caddy. How long how long does it take to print? Out of out of curiosity.
0: Well, so that was what ended up making it or why I chose to make it modular because when I designed the actual caddy that I wanted, it was going to be something like a nine hour print or something like that. And I said, Oh, that's gonna, I'm not going to do that. And so I think each part is like um, between an hour and a half and two hours, depending on what settings you use. I I like to, when I design things, I I really like to make it so that um, you can choose to use, as as much you know infill as you want or not and so people people make their own choices and and have, everybody has a different printer and so uh, my printer is also kind of slow um so that's why yeah uh, there, there may be some printers that, that do it faster
1: so so you've got two projects one is one is like a a service project right you're you're doing service for for through workshop 88 for for another organization um if it's okay to call it that sure and yeah. service pro, you know and uh, and the other is more of like a personal scratch and itch that you've got, correct? Um, kind of kind of thing. And I you know I, I've got a couple of questions um, about those before we kind of talk about your your professional work. And and I wonder if maybe that'll help inform in, in some respects. You know, some of the the things that you do professionally and. And so, you know, well, I, I guess one of them is kind of more geared towards Workshop 88. Do you do a lot of projects, a lot of service projects through Workshop 88, a lot of community projects? Is that, you know, would I'm, you say that's one of your main things there? Uh,
0: you mean in general, the workshop or, or me specifically?
1: Well, you you specifically, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. I, you know, um, I don't know if I get involved in the service projects as much specifically Um when something comes through that I, that, that, you know, I can at least tackle and I have the time and, and opportunity to do it. I, I definitely like to, to be a part of it. Um, it but um, yeah, I don't know if I, if I'm, if I personally am, am the one that's, you know, the most involved and, and it really varies as to when we get these requests that come through and, and of what, what nature um, they are uh i I definitely like being able to i mean this was the sort of thing where if a person said hey i'm trying to figure out how to do this um because i want to sell custom dice or or whatever or i'd like you to you know um to to do this and and then give me a bunch for my own use we i I don't know if if any one of us at 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 workshop 88 would um, be interested in in doing that but when it's posed as the well hey this is uh this is going to be for a local organization and we want the the things um, fabricated locally and we try to do the fundraiser, you know, every year. And so this may be an ongoing partnership that we could form. I, I think that's something that's worth at least investigating to see. And plus it was the sort of thing where I can learn some new ways of, of uh, using the tools that are available to me for things that um, I might not have thought about um you know Mm. i I know you do like i mean you you are into game making and and um not just uh video games but all types of games and the idea that you could uh with tools that are fairly common at the at the makerspace start fabricating um custom dice that 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 to me like was like well that might um open up some new possibilities for like board game ideas that might otherwise, uh, you know, not have had. Cause I mean, if you think about yeah. creating a fair, uh, a fair die, right. Uh, Cause people, when, when I first was asking around about um, the, the hardest thing actually was to find uh, existing D six that had one blank side, because the idea is five sides with the pips, and then one side with nothing that you can put something onto, and a lot of and and you can find a uh, blank dice. That's no problem. But I don't want to spend all my time doing five sides with with pips or, or anything else. You know that that to me is like six times harder than what I'm trying to do. Uh, so, right. um. And then if you say, well, then just get some wood and then make it out of wood or what? I'm like, well, how do I know that that wood the, the the wood dice is gonna are gonna be fair dice you know what i mean so yeah. so there you know once you get past all those questions then it's it's a, a matter of, you know um you find the raw material and then and then you're you're to the part where you got the the interesting challenge of um putting that logo on on, on the one side and so right yeah there's a lot of questions but in terms of like the um when we get the opportunity to, to have a, a service type project um, I like to be as involved as I can, given my availability and my, and my skills really.
1: Sure. So, I mean, so to talk about the, the dice project, I mean, it sounds like the the material that you're using informs the process, the parameters um, you know, having a logo on it, kind of informs the process and that's, you know, that's something that um, seems fairly common, right. But it's interesting that everybody talks about it is is you, you you know it's not like software where um you know there there are limitations certainly but they aren't material limitations right, right. and so it, it's interesting to hear you know hear these kind of commonalities um pop, popping up you know it's it's also interesting to um to to hear you know that maker spaces uh while not you know doing a lot of outside projects um, as community spaces are also contributing. Um, to the community around them and and not only that but using the projects that the community that are bubbling up from the community around them as and I don't have a better word for this right now but as excuses to learn something else right as insertion points right to, to learn something else and that seems to me to be a very common thread um, between maker uh, in the maker mentality maybe you can talk about that a little bit is is finding, a project that gives you a good insertion point or a good excuse into learning something else. So yeah, maybe it's dice, but I I, really it's about learning these, these tools and understanding these tools as it's related to dice.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I mean, man, the way, the way you're describing it, I think is, is pretty, pretty spot on. Although (laughs) now that I'm, I mean, as I'm saying this, I'm having trouble coming up with like good examples, but uh are specific examples but i have seen it frequently over the past you know eight or nine years the uh somebody who comes in with a, uh, an idea or uh this the sort of beginning of a project and they um and then someone else has enough knowledge um to, to kind of help them get started but then you know if, if that if that member of of the of the makerspace um gets inspired well then they'll uh they can start learning uh, more about what it is and then you know they're 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 adding to their own skill set of uh i mean they you know they were approached as supposedly the expert but then they got inspired to learn more about what it was because they saw it as an opportunity to um to expand their repertoire basically
1: yes both both the the advantage and sometimes um depending on how far uh, people go down the rabbit hole, the disadvantage to that, the, the maker mentality there, right? The, right. um, boy, how much can I learn? <laughs> and, uh, maybe at some point I need to, to, to peel back a little bit and, uh, you know, just get the thing done, which is, you know, it's just an interesting, um, problem that you know, a lot of people have. Absolutely. Uh, so, so you talked about the, the caddy as well. And, um, that sounds like a, uh, a, a project that you know maybe was in part an excuse to to use a tool that you had um maybe maybe learn a little bit more about it. i don't know but what what i'm interested in with that is that you've got this 3d printer at home and you're a member of a makerspace that has all these 3d printers so what's the what's the difference there between why why have some of that stuff at home and and work at home and also have the same access to that stuff at a at a community space and use that stuff there. What's the, the advantages and disadvantages of each? What when do you choose to use each context?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question. And for me, it's it's changed um, a little bit over time. So you know, um, I, I make uh, no secret, and, and I've always said this that um, when I found out that there was a forming. Maker space in my area um, and they wanted to have a dedicated workspace and they wanted to have things like 3d printers and laser cutters and and uh, electronics shop and you know wood shop and all these sorts of things I, I may I make no secret about how like I decided at that moment like I'm in I want that is what I want because at that moment like I could see no like path for my own like personal life, um, you know, including like home and 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 just uh, uh just you know w- what I had at home and and what was going on in my life. I could see no way that I would have access at home to those tools, right? Because those tools were um, at the time pretty cutting edge and pretty expensive, and that they weren't going to be available in in, in the homes easily, unless you were willing to, um, you know, pay a a bunch of money and then also put in a bunch of time to build them and configure them and, and that sort of thing. Whereas I figured if I am a part of a group that is contributing a little bit of money and everybody contributes a little bit of time, then I'll have access to that stuff. And so that was my mentality going into becoming a member of Workshop 88. And what I found very quickly, even, really even before Workshop 88 actually had the access to all the equipment, what I found is that the value was of, of the makerspace was not primarily in the equipment. I mean, yes, the equipment is important and it's you know, useful and, and, and fun in many ways, but um, but the real value was in access to the collective knowledge of all the members, and the, the exposure that I got to being able to accomplish things that that I otherwise couldn't have couldn't have figured out. And I mean, for for me, you know, it's it's helped me with personal projects. It's helped me with professional projects. And I mean, it's even helped me, even in I. I'm not too hard on myself when I start on something and I don't necessarily finish it as long as I've gained some, some knowledge and um, I have the ability to go back and, and, and finish that project when I need to. It's still I still count that as, as a benefit. So, um, you know, fast forward, you know, seven or eight years and 3D printers specifically have come down quite a bit in price. Even laser cutters are available, um, quite a bit, uh, quite a bit, um, you know, to, to home buyers or, or, or home users. But um, it's you know the sort of thing where, well, um, so I. Since the 3D printers are now affordable, I I, I thought, well, I'm going to go ahead and get a a very small one so I can have it for making small things. And then I'll use the ones at at the workspace for for bigger things. And I have a a 3D printer at my lab at school, too, so I have access to that. Um, But that hasn't changed the fact that the the, the knowledge that I can gain by going in and talking to, to people who are experts is still there. And I mean to be quite frank, even though laser cutters are available for for the home, um, I don't think it's something where my house is set up for having access to, um, or not access, I should say, but but the, abil- the 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 possibility of having a spot at my house where I could um, operate a a laser cutter at, at the house. So um, since that's a tool that is available at our at our makerspace, I still find value in that sure yeah so it, it
1: almost seems like this the same dilemma that you had you know nine or ten years ago with with 3d printers but uh, that you're having with laser cutters now you know, yeah the, the accessibility hasn't right has, hasn't quite gotten there yet exactly um, exactly yeah that's you know so, so really interesting about that is uh, you know obviously the the incorporation of um you know the the maker community things in or at least the tools that is uh, into your own personal space, right into your into your home. They've gone from, you know, kind of like prosumer to, to consumer grade um, uh, objects. Yeah. Um, the the other thing I find really interesting about that, I was I was, you know, doing a little reading the other day, and I can't I can't recall where or what. Um, uh, but anyways, uh, it'll come to me. And w- it was not really re- related to the maker movement, but more talking about. You know, and we hear this a lot, but it was talking about the transformations that the, you know, the internet has brought out to different industries. And one of the things that it got me thinking about was, um, you know, the the uh, the community aspect, not only in person, um, but online online, of of maker things that that might make it stand apart from previous craft movements. And what I mean by that is that the internet enables us to take the designs that we have for 3D printers like you know like your your uh, your um, modular box um, and and put them online and give other people the ability to remix them. right? So you know, decades ago, I could make a pot and somebody could try to mimic that design, but they couldn't duplicate it. And on top of that they 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 couldn't take it and then you know remix it or modify it as easily and and so you know the online community kind of gives us that ability to do that and i wonder I wonder if you could talk a little bit or if you have any thoughts on on whether those are intertwined you know the the in-person community aspect of makerspaces and the the online aspect uh if those are related in any way or if those are two two different things
0: oh i oh no i i think they're i think I think they can be intertwined, and I think that, and I think that they also can be separate. But um, you know, you were asking about the so the sort of the advantages that um, of having the stuff at home and the disadvantages, and and I think that that's where the online aspect actually comes in because um, I've seen not not so much with um, stuff that that I'm doing locally or anyone actually. Well, really, actually anyone that I know in the Chicago area, but I've seen other makers sort of across across the country who um, get access to something like a, a 3D printer or even a laser cutter at their home. And they're very creative people and they come up with a really, really cool idea. Um, and uh, it's the sort of thing where and, and then they try to start start a business out of it, which is fine. And, and, and everybody, you know, has has a right to do that. Um, but they'll. Their ideas that they they come up with, even though they're they're clever, they're kind of like um, easy enough to be duplicated, but yet they don't want to share the sort of the 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 raw files or the the knowledge so that people with access to that to those uh, tools could replicate those things. And so, um, what I think, I mean, <clears throat> it's the sort of thing. So I see this, uh, for example, with a lot of um, educational, especially mathematical toys. So there's there's um, people out there who are making these really creative, manipulative uh, devices for kids and for adults that are, are really fun, and um, they're cutting them on on, on laser cutters, um, and you know selling them as to to, to make money, um, and just be by the very nature of what it takes to, to, to run that business you know like online um, and for them to make a reasonable profit um, I can't foresee buying if I if I thought that I'd have a cool set like I can't buy uh more than like a dozen or you know a couple maybe 20 of these little pieces to like have around and, and and fit together whereas i'd love to have like you know a table full of these things and i think to myself well gee if i had um if they were sharing the stuff online then i could make something like that um at workshop 88 and it would be economical for me to do right um and so there's this tension between, well, um, are they, you know, really trying to make money or are they really trying to, to, to share knowledge? And I, I try to respect that because, you know, um, I believe that if you have a, um, an idea that's novel and unique, you, you have the right to monetize that however you want, but it does seem, I don't know, it does seem just a, a little, uh, a little silly to me that the... Uh, there are some people with access to the same tools that they could say, oh, you guys could could download this and then, you know, um, make it yourself, that sort of thing. So I, I see some people aren't taking advantage of the fact that this online community exists. And I wonder if that's because they started off with the tool in their basement instead of starting off with the tool at a community makerspace. Um, so I, but I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say because, you know, businesses have, have gone both ways where, um, they'll, they make things and they put the, the, uh, source files out there for people to download and make themselves, you know? And I don't know, I don't know, which is, I'm not trying to say that one is better than the other. Um, I'm just saying that it does limit the amount that I'm actually going to interact with, uh, with their creations.
1: Yeah. So let's, I wonder, and I think this is actually a pretty good segue into talking about some of the stuff that you're doing at JJC, um, because, uh, you know, what I'm hearing is, is kind of an aversion to, um, uh, to, to closed, uh, closed off knowledge. Uh, and I, I wonder, first of all, if, if that comes from, or is that, if that's part and parcel with uh, your, you know, your career, your vocation um, as an academic, uh, you know, is that is that something that you draw from from there? Um, and also, it's just a really good segue because I want to start talking about, you know, some of the steel pan drum work that you're doing and um, and uh, how how you're running that project with with this, you know, this ethos of of sharing knowledge. So. Um I guess that's two questions, right? Okay. Is is this is this kind of a a back and forth <laughs> uh, is, is this your your vocation informing um you know what you think how you think makers or making should be done? Um, I don't know if that's phrased right, but I think you get where I'm yeah. the feeling I'm headed there with that. And and then the second question is let's talk a little I mean really if, let's if you could give me some background on your steel pan drum work and then talk a little bit about um you know how that's informed by um, by all the stuff that we just talked about.
0: Sure, I think that for the for the first part, I think um, what I how, how I look at um, open and closed in, in terms of dissemination of knowledge is um, you know the difference between what I do on a personal or hobby or community level and what I do professionally. I mean, it's it's not one side informing the other. It's definitely a feedback loop, and it it may. I mean, when I started studying uh physics back in when I was an undergrad in college, um I was introduced to Linux and the open source community. And um I I mean I've never been a professional software developer. Um I have you know written uh, plenty of code for use in, in, in uh physics and you know some other small small things. Um, but I definitely tend towards or I, and I gravitate towards open source when it comes to software and open access when it comes to, to knowledge and, and, and the dissemination of that. Um, I feel like, it, but in, in terms of like uh, the academic world and, and uh, the sharing of, of knowledge, um, sometimes I feel like the academic is end of things is, is almost playing catch up to, to where it should be in terms of getting to an ideal of of making, making things open. Um, And there are some people who I run into who feel way more strongly about it than I do in terms of how open things should be um, to the point where um, I I don't think they, they have uh, regard for, what institutions are in place that, that support um, academic knowledge dissemination, just, just in general. And I don't even mean like commercial entities. I mean, you know, nonprofit professional organizations that are doing their best to support the people who are doing the work, but, but, you know, need money to be able to continue to support that. And, and how do we do that? And how, but yet, how do we make things more open? I just think um, a lot of academic, academic institutions just move super slowly and making their, their changes. And that's unfortunate, but um, I'd rather move slowly and still have the support that I need from professional organizations, than move quickly and break things to the point where, you know, uh, the, the people who are who are trying to help me actually go out of business. So that's just kind of how I feel about it. And then why I say it's like a feedback loop, just informing, Um, different parts of, of, of the, the different fields where I work. So, um, but in, and so in terms of, um, what I'm doing with the, the, the steel pan work, and this is, um, the history of this is, is, is super long, although I, I think I can summarize it, um, just in that, um, There's this really, like, so we know a lot about the physics of Caribbean seal pans. So seal pans are the drums that come from uh, Trinidad and and Tobago, which were developed um, largely as a result of um, uh, colonial influence, really, in the... pre-World War II and, and World War II era um, of, of that time period. Um, there's a, a really fascinating story that, that goes into that. But um, the people of Trinidad have developed this, this this percussion instrument, this family of drums that we call the steel pan, and it has spread all over the world. And it's um, one of the most recent um, tuned musical instrument uh, tuned acoustic musical instruments to have really become worldwide um, accepted and we know a lot about the physics of how they work and why they sound the way they do but but what makes the steel pan like super fascinating super interesting to me is that you have a whole bunch of notes in the same piece of steel and you hit one of those notes with your mallet to make to make the pitch for that single note all right but the wave is traveling all throughout the the steel and other notes are vibrating after you know as you've hit the the one note that you're trying to make the sound and because of you know musical reasons and and uh and and the physics behind it um the other notes start vibrating sympathetically, right? And this is also something that in general has been known for, for a very long time. But um, what isn't really known is um, on, the, on the short time scales that right after you hit the note, uh, how the energy gets from one note to the other and like how do we characterize it? How do we describe it? And how does that go specifically into making that characteristic sound that we all recognize as, as the steel pan. And there have been a couple of people who have tried to, to figure this out and they thought, well, this is a, you know, uh, just getting a basic measurements shouldn't, shouldn't take that long. And so, you know, they, they dedicate like a, a weekend to it and, uh, they start in on it and the weekend comes and goes and they're like, Oh, that was actually way more complicated than we thought. And so, uh, they don't end up making a lot of, a lot of progress on it. And so, um, you know i was talking to a colleague of mine this is many years ago so this, this project has been going going on many years and he said well how, I, how many how many years <laughs> you working on this? well this this specific part of it i think i've been working on uh I, I think it's going on nine years it's it's been a long time okay yeah wow <laughs> yeah okay. yeah, it's, yeah it's a long time but but uh, there's been a lot of breaks in between where i just kind of sat on a bunch of stuff and didn't, didn't really do anything with it which is which is unfortunate but he, he had access to um, a holography system. It's it's really not holography, but I, I use that just as a shortcut. It's uh, electronic um, TV holography is what I tell people um, who who uh, you know don't know too much about optics. Um, and, and and holography for, for background is is what? Well, okay. So traditional holography, <laughs> like if you were to give me a a
1: quick quick. primer on
0: it okay so uh i'll so okay yeah no problem um so holography uh, traditional holography is done where you record um optical information on on a piece of film okay so and you process it with chemicals um but what makes the holography different than just a photograph is, so a photograph, you, you only get intensity information. So how, how bright is um, the, the different parts of, of the image recorded on, on the piece of film. But what holography also includes is the, the, the phase of the light wave. And so you get, um, that's how you're able to reconstruct the three-dimensional image Um, when you, when you, when you, uh, look at a hologram that's been, um, yeah. And so with the, so the way that that works with the film setup is you take the light, which is usually a laser and you split it into two different beams. And, um, one beam is shined on the object that you're trying to make a hologram of. And the other beam is just bounced around some mirrors and is, uh, then, then illuminated, um on the film um and the the difference between those two beams that are incident on on the film is what gives you the phase information all right so with the with the tv holography um what we do is it's the exact same setup um except instead of using film we use a a digital camera that's hooked up to a a computer and the uh, result is that um we we throw away the phase information, so this is why it's not holography. But um, we take the difference between the, the like successive frames, and the difference between the successive frames shows the parts of the object that are moving or not. And so we can see um, we can see mo- motion uh, or how things are, are vibrating um, when when we you know cause something to vibrate in, in front of the the um, TV holography system. Um, but what my colleague had, that I didn't have access to, was he had a setup that could record um, or could do this this vibration and um, imaging at 10,000 frames per second or, or or more. So he had a high-speed camera in his thing. And um, he said, well, look, this is going to show us how the wave propagates as it um, after you hit the drum, whereas everything that I could do, um, I, c- I couldn't do that at all. I had to actually make the, the drum vibrate at, at a very, at a single frequency. And then um, I was just recording its average motion, um, which is useful. It, it gives us a lot of information, but it wasn't able to answer the questions that we were trying to answer. So I said, Oh, that sounds really cool. I'm going to come down and uh, bring my drum and we'll make a bunch of images and we'll try to figure things out. So we did. And um, he showed me how to do how to make the movies. Cause you have to do a little processing after you record the you you hit the drum in front of the system and then uh you're recording a a, a movie that's like it's uh um, i don't know it's like a a second long it, or i don't i don't want to exaggerate but it's you end up with a, a four gigabyte file that's you know um covers about a second roughly speaking you know
1: oh wow uh, okay yeah
0: and so Um, we're only we're only interested in a fraction of what we record and so we extract all the frames and we we try to throw away all the stuff that is is um before it was vibrating and, and after it's done vibrating we're only looking at the frames where it's actually vibrating and so now you have a movie that you've processed to that you can see the waves and we saw a bunch of things that really got us excited um and he said okay well uh, you go home and you, you analyze it. Right. And so I, I started working on it and um, I probably made a, a, a just a simple miscalculation like early on where I had, you know, 20 different frame 20 different strikes, so 20 different movies. And I was looking at like the first hundred frames of each of them. Right. Which, which already sounds like a lot. Um, but it turned out that I, I, the important information was not in the first hundred frames; it was actually in the first like two thousand frames of of all of these. And um, two thousand frames, we were we were recording at at um, at, uh, th- at ten thousand frames per second. So that was two tenths of a second of information is contained in that two thousand frames. Um, and so once I realized um, that it wasn't a hundred frames. I need to look, it was 2000. I, 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 I got kind of like overwhelmed and that's when I kind of put it on the shelf for a while saying, okay, I need a, I need a, a new strategy because, um, you know, nine years ago, well, the other thing is that these, these movies, um, they have a lot of noise in them. They're, they're black and white, but there there's graininess to it because of the technique. And that's totally normal. It's not something that we can like just clean up or whatever. It's just inherent to the process. So I knew right. And
1: these are, these are, sorry to interrupt. Okay. But these are, by the way, images that people can find if they, if they want to see these things, they can find them uh, online, which you'll talk about. I'm guessing yes. in a little bit. Yeah, right? Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. We'd love for people to come look at them. <laughs> uh, yes. So, so what? Um, but I knew at the time that you know the because I had done some other um, machine vision work, and I knew that the machine vision tools just weren't going to handle what we needed to do for the analysis part. And so it was about th- I think it was about three years ago um, is when because I'd been uh, going back to the like open source <laughs> sort of discussion. Um, I I had been playing around with. Uh, what was the Galaxy Zoo at the time. And Galaxy Zoo was this project where the Sloan Digital Sky Survey was taking images of hundreds of thousands of galaxies, and they wanted the public to help classify them because they also had the the issue where uh, computer algorithms could not accurately classify galaxies the way that they wanted them to whereas a person could instantaneously look at it and then click a button and make the right classification. And so, um, when the astronomers figured out that this citizen science way of doing things, um, was a valid way of, of getting classifications made, um, they also figured out that there are many, many, many other projects that might benefit from that type of, um, public support and participation. And so they, they set up a platform called the Zooniverse, uh, going from galaxy zoo to Zooniverse, uh, where any researcher could put up a project and um, get help from the public. And so I started to play around with that and I loaded up a bunch of our, um, our data and, and started trying to figure out if this was going to be something that would be a path for us to to take in the analysis. And, and, you know, again, this is where um, I have to admit, I, I, probably made a a mistake. I, I sat on that idea because I was playing around with it myself in my, in my free time, which I didn't have a lot of. Um, but I sat on that idea for about a year because I wasn't sure what my collaborator was going to think about, um, you know, turning this into a citizen science project. And as soon as I mentioned to him that I was playing around with this, he, he's, he said, go for it. Like, let's, yeah, let's do it. Let's, let's, uh, Let's turn it on. And and so then I got some students involved and we uh, became an official project of um, Zooniverse. And so our project is called Steel Pan Vibrations, which um, is a terrible name, uh, partly because I'm not good at coming up with good names uh and also sure. also because um I didn't really understand when I was setting things up that that was not just a placeholder I thought that, that like I thought as I'm toying around <laughs> with this like this is what I'm calling it and then eventually I'll get a better name and and by the time we went through the whole like review process. Uh, they were like, okay, you're good. And then they made us live and, and our name had, had been kind of cemented in place. And, and so that's fine. Um, but I wish I had,
1: you need some of those, uh, the, the marketing team at NASA. They've been, I do. They've been yeah, right no,
0: yeah. I need, I need someone. Yes. I need some marketing help. That's, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's been really neat. And, and so what's actually evolved over. So, I worked on it for a year-ish before I um, really did anything with it. And then my students worked on it for um, for about I don't know, three or four months before we became uh, a live uh, official project. And, um, you know, we're recording this in, in late August, but um, tomorrow it's going to, like, the day after I'm talking to you right now is going to be our one-year anniversary of being... Um, an official project on, on Zooniverse where the public can like easily see our, our, our stuff and, and participate. And they, they log in, they make classifications um, that help, that really help us um, start to put together a picture of um, how the steel pan, like how the energy spreads from one note to the, to the other, which is um, it, it's
1: what's the uh, what's the, what's the link for it. I mean, people can go to Zooniverse and, and find it. Is there a, a quick and easy link that um,
0: um, yeah it's you wanna mention um the the yeah the link is not quick and easy um but it's uh <laughs> yeah so but it's it's if you go to zooniverse.org and um either, uh, you click on projects, projects there. yeah and yeah. we're probably on page two by now because actually the zooniverse has really blossomed in the past year um added a whole bunch of a whole bunch of uh projects um to it. Sure. So so
1: you just need to click on steel pen. You've got a whole, mm-hmm. whole um, page yep. here. You can learn more yeah. about what you're talking about. There's a
0: tutorial that you go through yeah. and you click on classify and, and stuff like yeah. that. And I, I, I do want to mention um, one thing I'm, I'm really excited about is that in the past year since we've been doing this, um, we, I made a new um, collaboration with, with someone who knows quite a bit about machine learning. And what um, yeah. his idea was is that um, machine learning algorithms are, would be really good at taking our user's classification and then uh, being trained on that and then be able to uh, make classifications on sure. the rest of our data set. So we are actually pursuing that right. and it's, it's, it's showing some real promise. But it, that, so, that yeah. really shows that we need both the user like the volunteer classifications um partnered with the the computer algorithms
1: right pattern detection by people and then passing that off to a machine that can then you know use those patterns as a template that's how many how many um contributions uh have you have you gotten from the, these citizen scientists out there since the project's been out, if you can mention yeah, that no, or if you even know that.
0: Absolutely. Well, I don't know exactly. Um, I mean, I, I get a, I download a data dump, um, every couple weeks or so. Um, and I think we were up to, I want to say oh, we were in somewhere you know, around 35,000 contributions. Mm, wow. which, yeah. It sounds like a lot, but it's, uh, this mm. is a, it's a, it's a weird math game that like you, you end up like, um, you know, either deluding yourself or, (laughs) or getting into trouble because like we have current right right now. So we took down a bunch of our, uh, data for, for analysis, just to try to focus on stuff that we, um, had, had a lot of classifications on. Um, and so right now we only have like 3,500 images up. Um, previously we had close to, well, it was over 13,000, uh, images that, that we had up and we took down about 10,000 of those images to focus on the ones that we have, uh, the ones that we, that we had a lot of, uh, of, of, classifications on. And, but the, the, the rub is, is that we need 15, uh, classifications per image. So, you know, when you do 15, images times 3,500. Right. That's like, that's rough. Yeah. It's like 15, it's like 53,000 almost, uh, right. classifications we need just for this like subset are the ones that we have on there. And, you know, this is where the crowd is supposed to like really, really help us out because it says on our page, we have, um, you know, almost 1900 people who have signed up to, to help us. And so like, you know, if, if all those 1900 people made like um, 20 classifications, we'd be close to done with what we have. Right. But the, the mm-hmm. reality is that um, a large chunk of those almost 1900 volunteers, they clicked on it um, once or maybe twice. And then we're like, no, this isn't for me and I'm done with it. And yet they still count as a registered volunteer. And so it's, it's, it's what, tricky, but yeah.
1: What, what does that mean? Yeah. Cause this kind of goes to a question I want to, to ask you, you said, um, they found out it wasn't for them. So, so something interests me about this, you know, the idea of citizen science, um, your background in, in making, um, in that they, they maybe they seem a little bit related. You know, you're, you're, you've got people who are, are participating in this exercise. Um, they're not getting paid for it. Um, and, and you know, I, I guess, Rather than me assuming anything and saying anything yet, I I, I wonder if you have any handle on why um, why people are drawn to your project in particular, and, and just in citizen science in general, um, what what drives them? Why are they doing? Why are they participating in these projects?
0: Wow, that's a that's a really good <laughs> question. I actually I, I have thought about it, um, and although I probably didn't frame it exactly the way you framed it, which you know maybe you maybe you're framing it in a in a better way. Um, we there there was someone who one of our one of our regular users. I didn't discover this until a week or two after it happened, but uh, one of our regular users actually posted on the main Zooniverse forum um, the the question that I had been asking, which is why don't some projects have more participation than others? And I mean he he this. I assume it's a he i I, sh- I shouldn't but this particular user um used our our project as, a, as an example although that the user is also active on other on other projects um and his his real you know question or confusion was well it seems like this um steel pan vibration one in particular like really really needs the, the the crowd and that the the human interaction is really important right and that the the scientific questions that we are asking are really interesting and could you know benefit from what what um the volunteers could could give us why aren't more people helping out um and i, I think what you're saying is so what why are the people who are helping out help out and i do know just um, in general, people join these projects for all different sorts of reasons. Um, there's, you know, broadly speaking, there's a couple of uh, types of science that is done. There's a lot being done with wildlife cameras that are trying to um, count different populations that are doing, uh, of, of wildlife that are doing different things. There's the astronomy ones, which are doing all sorts of, all sorts of things in, in astronomy. And um, then there's, you know, just, uh A variety of of, of scientific things that, that, you know, um, and so some people really get into seeing cute animals and they really like that. And that can be fun. Um, and there, there's a surprising number of people who, um, just love space and like, you know, they're like, why would I help with physics? I don't like physics. I like space and I'm you know, whatever, if that's, if that's your thing, like, like that more power to you, go, go for that. Um, I also know that one thing I didn't count on enough when I was uh, developing this is um, the ability for people to interact with our project is limited on tablets and phones. Um, Because, you know, we're not asking, do you see something or not? Yes or no. Click a click a button. We're asking, hey, uh, circle something or actually really draw an ellipse around something and then count the number of things and then label the number of things that, that you see in there. And it turns out like drawing an ellipse with your fingers on, uh, in the interface on a tablet is, or a phone is almost impossible. And so a lot of people who, um, try this out, they get linked to to things that they're looking at a link on their phone or their, or or their, their iPad. And if they even attempt it on, on ours, it's, it's just not a great experience. And so I didn't, I didn't know about that when I, when I started that out. And so that was a, an issue um, for, for our project. But um, I, I do, your, I mean, your question is something I wish I would spend a little bit more time thinking about why, I know why, I know why a few individuals have um, participated in our project, but I don't know if they are representative of the bigger, you know, group.
1: Right. So, so part of it is, you know, whatever the, you know, typical design considerations um, that you make when you put any kind of project together that, that you want buy-in from other people. But part of it, you know, you you mentioned, you know, some people like space. Um, I wonder, you know, if there's more to it than just an affinity towards that thing. If I like space, I could also go watch, you know, cosmos or something like that right mm-hmm. like what's the you know it's there's a certain group of people who it's not it's just, it doesn't it it's not just an infinity to towards something it's um it seems like there's something more there and and it just kind of seems related back in some way to you know to this this uh the whole idea of of making and and maker culture which is you know people participating in something maybe that they can't even explain why they're participating in it quite yet, but they, they're following some intuition that they have. um,
0: Well, yeah, no, as, as, as you were describing that, I mean, the the words that were coming to my mind were um, active participant in the process of the scientific discovery. Right. And I mean, before I even did the, well, actually after I did the galaxy zoo, one of the things that I, one of the projects that I participated on a lot was um, I think it's called planet hunters. And that was a thing where the um, Kepler telescope um, is a space telescope and it's, it's looking for um, exoplanets. So planets that are orbiting other stars, not our sun um, by the transit method. All right. So a planet goes around a sun and or a star and uh, when it passes in front of the star, the the brightness of the star dips down a little bit. And so if you're tracking the brightness of that star um, over time, you should see a dip whenever the planet goes in front of it. And the idea was they, they loaded up the data and, and the data is um, it's, it's noisy enough that, the, again, computer algorithm can't always pick it out. And so they would have people look at it. And so I would look at it. And, and I mean, part of the hook is like, you might be one of the people who ends up discovering a new planet. Right. And it's, it's, I mean, very quickly you come to the realization based on how the project works that like, you know, it's not not the sort of thing where like you're going to be credited as the sole discoverer or even the first discoverer Um, you're going to be, you know, in a long list of people who helped, like do this and you might get a thank you somewhere, you know, once, right. Uh, or, or maybe not even, but um, if, if you're in it for some sort of recognition, you're probably not going to go through all the, the tedium of going through all the, all the files that, that, um, that have nothing anyway. Um, but still, at least in my mind, it was the, the thought that like, I'm really, I mean, this is like real, New data that that is part of current mm. and active science, and I think even for um, non-scientists, that that's something that because it's so accessible to the general public, that it is that it is exciting.
1: So this is I, I like this idea of actively participating in discovery. I think that's something that um, you know kind of does explain. Uh, why somebody might do something that seemingly has no um, no tangible what we would consider value to <laughs> what most people consider value to the individual uh, and and that does certainly relate back to making. and you know there's there's a lot of uh, not a lot probably, but there's there's a lot of writing on that and and the idea of thinking through making as well. Um, and I wonder how that informs not just, your your citizen science projects, um, but active dis- actively participating in discovery. How, how does that inform, um, you, you know, the own the work that you do in the classroom? Um, and has 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 how you work uh, with your students in the classroom changed over the years? Has that been informed in any way by this feedback loop that you talked about with you know between making and academia, um, and and workshop eighty eight and JJC, you know um, what's the, what's the link there?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, certainly I, I hope that, um, my teaching and my work with students, uh, is constantly evolving and constantly changing and and that I, um, try new things and see what works and develop new ways of, of doing things. Um, you know, one of the things I, I, one of the classes I teach, um, every semester is a uh, physics of music essentially is what, what the class is. And um, for years I've had the, every semester I have an, a, a semester long assignment where students are responsible for designing and building a musical instrument that uh, actually plays a scale and that they have to come in and perform, perform the scale. They perform two, tunes on it the tunes can be um very simple that's you know like i don't care if it's twinkle twinkle little star and uh, mary had a little lamb or whatever um but you know the point is to um recognize the physical processes that we've been talking about and being able to show how the that that instrument um, makes use of the, of the the concepts that we've been discussing in, in class. So um, it's trying to tie together the concept with like, okay, now you're going to put this into um, something that's tangible and something that actually uh, accomplishes what, what we've been talking about uh, the whole semester. So that's, that's one example where that's um, the real, the real thing that I'm doing or I, the real thing that I'm doing, the, it's a, It's, it's a connection between a real connection between making and, and the, uh, the educational part of, um, my job. Um, and, you know, I think that, uh, well, we have a maker lab here on campus and, um, I, frequently send classes down there at least once a semester and i wish that i would send them down there more than once a semester but you know other other constraints can can get in my way Um, mostly time constraints that i'm really trying to balance and um but what i like about the um the maker lab is that there, there really can be a connection between um the stuff that we're doing and then the the students creativity so one of the the assignments that i that I gave for, for use in the maker lab, which I just, it, it worked out so well. I was just so, so happy was, you know uh, if you were anywhere connected to either the maker community or the like eight year old to 14 year old community in the last uh, two and a half years, you have heard of fidget spinners, right? And so, um, you know, you just couldn't avoid them. Right. Uh, And so. What I thought was, was um, interesting about fidget spinners is that uh, if you looked at them as a physical system and you, you asked, well, okay, well, why, why are these interesting? <laughs> or why do, why do they spin so long? Um, they are very, very simple physics reasons why they can spin so long. And we talk about the, the, the reasons in, 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 in or we talk about these concepts in class, although we don't connect them to fidget spinners. Um, but just in general, when you ask people, they don't, They even if they get it right, they don't necessarily understand why they're getting the, the answer right. And so what I came up with was an assignment where um, students were um, challenged to design two fidget spinners of their own, imagination, okay and one of them had to be um, as as big as possible and yet still be able to spin uh, between their their forefinger and their thumb. And the other one um, was designed to be you know uh, smaller than that like significantly smaller than that. And so those were the two parameters that I just wanted them to to have in terms of the design criteria. Go design it, go fabricate them at the at the maker lab, bring them to class and then we're going to do some physics with it and, and get to um, the discovery of uh, where the connection between the, the concepts that we've already talked about in class and this real thing and why certain designs for these fidget spinners are more interesting than the others. Um, and so I, I mean, that to me, I thought that was phenomenal and like, uh, and, and, and I think the students liked it too. Um, but and they and they learn things, so that was good. And the the only thing that I that I ended up discovering, I like that. And and they learn things. Oh too, yeah, so that was that good. was good. Yeah. <laughs> well, I sort of start off with that as a yeah. That's, well, yeah. I hope that that's a given, but you know, I, I, in my mind, that's always a given. But what I, what what I as a self criticism, and this is maybe this is just a personal hang up of, of my own. But my 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 self criticism is every time I seem to come up with a new idea where I can um, take that excitement that, that I thought that I had and that I thought that the class had and make the connection between making something and then connecting it to the material that we're already talking about in class. It always seemed to be with regard to some, with regard to rotations. So like fidget spinners, it's all about rotational motion. Right. And so probably the last three or four ideas I've had have been and they're they're they're, they look uh, uh, from the outside to be like you're creating different things. OK. But the physics is all described by rotational motion. And so I'm kind of like, well, I'd really like to do something that's equally cool, but and 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 let students um, have that creative aspect but uh, do it throughout the whole semester, not just during that, that one unit. And so that's been like my personal challenge to how can I better uh, do hmm. that for students and, and make it, make right. it spread out throughout the whole, the whole year.
1: Yeah. Devising various insertion points for the different subject matters that or you know, the different areas that you're exploring. Exactly. Exactly. Um, in the classroom. Yeah. 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 So, so that's kind of, you know, the, the interesting part about that is really bringing, um, you know, part of your job outside of your personal projects and, and making your own things and, and being part of Workshop 88 is bringing other people along, um, being bringing maybe people who would not consider themselves, I don't know what you want to call it, makers or creators, um, free agents, whatever, uh, along in this process and and getting them. You know, because it's not just that you're teaching them physics at this point, it's it's that you're giving them agency over their education um, through that active participation. And, you know, what I what I find really interesting about about this, you know, particular podcast that we haven't been able to talk so much in, about in the other ones, mostly because the other the other individuals were not, you know, that their profession was not educate, you know, in education in higher ed. Um, is is this process of. um uh, Uh, you know, bringing people along, you know, as makers. And I wonder if, if to kind of finish this off, um, because we're getting towards the the top here uh, to, you know, to finish this off, if if you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, if you have, if that's something that you, you consider in your classroom, even how do you, how, you know, in other words, how to bring people along through the making process and any, kind of strategies that you use to do that.
0: Yeah, I I I definitely uh, I mean that is something that occurs to me um partly because um I um you know, I, I end up teaching a lot of enge- uh, engineering students or students who want to become engineering majors. Um and I uh you know, I'm only teaching, I'm at a two-year college, and so I'm teaching them the first year physics, which all um, engineering students have to take. And And I'm totally confident in my ability to, to do that. But um, I have to admit, like, I am not a, um, uh, I'm not an engineer, right? So other than what I know about the basics of engineering, like, I, I don't have things to specifically contribute to, to them about what they're going to do, especially in like their um, junior and senior year of, of their education. Um, but I, I view engineers as makers. I mean, this is, you know, they're, that's their, that's one of their main goals and there's all sorts of levels at which engineers are doing, doing this, this making as a, as a profession. And um, I think, I, I can't remember exactly what book that I read this in, But um, I want to say it was a book by um, Henry Petrosky, who was the author of To Engineer is Human. But I'm not certain if that was because I've read several of his books. But somewhere in there, it was like in the introduction to one of these books, um, he pointed out that there is literally no bridge on the planet that is exactly the same as any other bridge. Right. Because every span that you're trying to cover when you're trying to cover a bridge, like, you know, go go from point A to point B across a river or whatever, a a culvert or something, um, the elevation. Uh, is going to be different on one side or the other or what you're sticking your supports into is going to be slightly different or the the width of the span is going to be different. And so, like, it's impossible to have two bridges that are exactly identical. So every time um, an engineer that comes along and designs a bridge, like they're solving a new problem. Right. And of course, there are techniques that have been developed over, you know, the, the history of engineering that um, lead to successful bridge designs when you run into uh, certain, certain parameters. And, you know, uh, students will learn that and, and successful engineers will learn that. But the, the point is that um, you have to be able to analyze and um, figure out what all those different, different issues are. And then there's some inherent creativity in that. And I just, I mean, to me, that's like, um, I, I, I try to use that as an example for the students to to make them think. Well, um, that this future that they're building for themselves is not just um, you know, is it's not just a job that they're going to get. Like, oh, I'm going to be an electrical engineer, or oh, I'm going to be a civil engineer, or a mechanical, or whatever it is. Uh, yes, that is, and and I hope that you are excited and that you have a a, a fulfilling career doing that, but that. Uh, some of those positions um, are especially important in terms of decisions that you'll be making that affect other people's lives, right? Like we want the that bridge to be a safe bridge that is going to support um, cars and trucks and people that that, that go across it. Um, and so um, I want these students to be thinking uh, about how they can be creative, but also how, how can they... Um, make safe and and ethical choices, uh, along the way and, um, and to give them things like the, the agency to be able to, um, recognize when, when they have to speak out and, 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 um, you know, make hard choices and, 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 uh, you know, um, if they run into a situation where like, you need to bring someone's attention that like a problem has come up that we need to, to fix, like how how are you gonna handle that um, as you you know be, become a professional engineer or whatever? And of course, again, I'm not an engineering uh, professor, I'm not a engineer, but um, I think it's important that you start at the very beginning with ideas of um, ethics and ideas of creativity. And that informs why it's so important that you understand, you know, Newton's laws of motion, which like uh, as an engineer, I think you probably, you sure. know, you probably never have to like actually do it, but you need to understand those basic principles which guide everything else.
1: Right. Everything informs everything. Right. Think-
0: exactly. Exactly.
1: I think that's a really good spot to... Um to end off on. So real quick, before we get off, one of the things I like to ask everybody is, um, you know, where can, where can we find you on the internet? Where, where should we follow you? Do you have a website? Any, any places that you want people to visit to check you out?
0: Uh, sure. I, well, we already talked about the Zooniverse project, which I would love for you to, to check out. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, that's probably where I'm most active. It's, at ACH Morrison uh on Twitter. And I have a pinned tweet that links right to that um Zooniverse thing and it links to a couple other uh Twitter lists that I that I maintain of other Twitter users that I think are um interesting for the, the type of stuff that I do. Um and I have a, a, a blog that um, hasn't been updated in too long. So it's a, a, it's a perfect a perfect blog for 2018. Um, and that's uh, Drewsday.com, I think. I think that's right. It's been so long. I said, yeah. But uh, yeah. Well,
1: Andrew Morrison, thank you so much for joining us for session four. Uh, Andrew Morrison, professor at... Uh, Julia Junior College Executive Board member at Workshop 88, and uh, go check out his his steel pan acoustics project at uh, Zooniverse. All the links will be included in the show notes at uh, this or sorry, shouldworkmedia.com. Andrew, thanks so much. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for listening to session four of this should work podcast. Uh, If you enjoyed this show, check out all of our previous ones at shouldworkmedia.com or by subscribing to the podcast on any of the aforementioned uh, outlets. Uh, In our next session, we'll be talking with Rachel Helenga um, about designing and creating STEM tools, toys and all sorts of other cool pieces of technology um with her company so stay tuned and thanks again for listening